right side of history was used a lot by Clinton and Obama, and it's still used. It's still used a lot. And there's actually, um, I did some googling, and there's a lot of articles right now floating back and forth about how like this phrase has just become so overused and it's losing its meaning. And how? And then there's others like, how can there even be a right side of history? Like, how arrogant is that to assume we're on the right side of history and you hold the other view are not? And that's usually how it's used. It's a bullying term to say, look. Get in line with our views because we're on the right side of history. Okay, well, I have two problems with this. You probably rant for a while, but there's two specific problems I have with this. The first is, whose right side are we talking about? Whose right side of history are we talking about? Because on any given issue, there are people on one side that claim they're on the right side of history and on the other side who claim they're on the right side of history. I mean, really, do you think the other side saying, nah, we're on the wrong side of history and we're okay with that? Like, that's not usually how that goes. So in a relative culture, it's very relative about what is the right side of history. Furthermore, the only way then to discover who is on the right side is to look at who wins on the issue. That's usually how we determine the right side. So World War II, America was on the right side of history because we won. But if the Germans won... What would history say there? They would say they're on the right side of history, right? Or think about um, slavery, the, the, uh, the African um, slave trade in our own nation and in England. Okay, so Abraham Lincoln was on the right side of history on that one. But if that never happened, the slaveholders would have claimed they're on the right side of history. See, we won. Nobody could overcome our slave trade. The right side of history is so subjective sometimes. Now, you and I might think we have a view on what the right side of history is, but really, when we're all throwing these claims around, we're left with this, what is the right side? How do you know? Maybe, yes, in the present, it feels like the right side, but 100 years from now? Abortion is, according to a lot of Americans, the right side of history, but in 100 years, someone was telling me just the other week, we might see abortion like slavery. Eventually, it might be seen as the wrong side of history. It can change, right? What we need is God's judgment on what is right and wrong. And he will, when he comes, he will be the one that decides, because he's going to end history, and he'll say, all right, that's the right side, that's the wrong side. So that's one of the problems, is unless we're using God's standard, letting him be the judge. I don't even mean I'm going to interpret what he means on this issue, because sometimes these things are too complex for us to claim to know. But I mean literally let him be the judge at the end. That's when you know the right and wrong side of history is when he comes and brings it to its end and he is the judge of all things. But my second problem is not just who's right are we talking about, it's which history are we talking about. Consider that there is one thought about history very prevalent. It's so prevalent we may actually adopt it without thinking about it. And that is that history is a slow and steady stream moving toward progress. That, you know what? We've looked at history and for the most part, there's a few hiccups, but for the most part, we have been moving towards better and better and better living and we are making progress. And if we just allow enough time, everything will work out. And so when people say they're on the right side of history, what they're essentially saying is, look, man, I see where the times are going, and I'm going with it. And if you want to be on the wrong side, fine, but this is where things are going, and it's unstoppable. So you might as well join now. That's often how it's used. 
and the worldview behind that is that history is taking us on a course that's unstoppable. Well, I have problems with that too. Evil is never taken into the equation when we talk about history in that sense. It's as if, given enough time, if we continue to move down in a certain direction of progress, everything will sort of write itself out. But C.S. Lewis called some severe criticism to this thinking and said, wait a minute, you cannot just think that by finishing the math sum and by getting to the end, as long as you endure and get to the end, you're going to get it right. Because if you made a mistake somewhere in the middle, the only way to get to the right answer is to go back and to fix your mistake. Progress for the sake of moving forward does not necessarily make things better. And the problem with thinking that history is just progressing us down this stream is that it is not actually trying to correct the wrongs of the past. Evil does not have an answer in this way. It's just saying, well, we'll eventually rise above it. But what about what happened before? Can we just brush that under the rug? Can we really just forget about that? Of course not. And Christianity cannot allow us to just forget about that. See, God's history is different. God's history is more like, well, if history was like this hereby accord. Who wants to bet money that this will not come out straight? The worship people understand. So, like, history is just kind of going on its own course. Of course that would happen. Ah, here we go. All right, so we got a nice dandy knot in here. See this tangle? This is beautiful. Whoops. This is, this is the way history really looks right there, right? Now, those that want to buy into history is just eventually going to get better and better if we just let it keep going. Think that it's like this nice little straight line. Of course, they're not that naive. It wiggles and waggles, and there's like hiccups there. Like, oh, that war was bad. That genocide was bad. But for the most part, it's working its way out. But we still got to deal with this. And what C.S. Lewis says is that this here, it will not just develop. Given enough time, it's just going to develop itself and straighten itself out. Well, actually, you know what happens is if we think that that's the case, we're going to keep pushing the train of progress forward. And that knot, as you pull, is going to get tighter and harder to undo. So what Lewis says is rather evil has to be undone bit by bit. You have to go back and you have to solve these things and work it. Yeah, that was a real knot. That's good. There's two knots here. Anyways, you get the point. It takes some time and you got to go through this or it's just going to get yanked on, tugged and get tighter and tighter. This is what we're dealing with. And this is why it's hard to claim that this or that or this person or that person are on the right side of history. There's a better question to be asking, and it's not what is the right side of history, it is what is the right solution for history. If this unweaving line has its tangles and its knots, and the knots are evil and the problem of the fall, if it has these knots in it, we don't need to know, oh yeah, what side of the knot is the right one? Both ends you pull aren't going to solve it. What we need to know is what is the right solution for this knot? What is the right solution for the line of history? What will get the kinks out? And that, I believe, we will see 
to an extent here in Isaiah's passage, there's this emphasis on history, and let's look at it. So what we're going to see in chapter 63 is this sobering vision. It's ugly. And at first, I was like, no, not this passage. I really have to teach it. So I added more chapters so I don't really have to teach it. I'm just kidding. Um, we're going to see that really sobering vision. And then in the middle of 63, the prophet's going to launch into a prayer. It's going to take us all the way through chapter 64. Then in 65, God's going to respond to the prayer and say, are you sure you want me to answer that? Okay, so let's look at it. Chapter 63, verse 1. Oh, wait. Before we read 63, verse 1, I need to remind you, because we had Freedom Sunday last week and didn't quite uh, get the whole context as you looked at a verse. But remember in chapter 60, Isaiah says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. In chapter 60, Isaiah sees the glory that will rise. There's a good future for God's people. Now, this half-light, is it dawn or is it dusk, might be confusing, and the world might debate, no, 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 we're getting better. No, no, we're getting worse. But the Bible says it's dawn. It's going to rise and be happy. But for some people, it's going to set and be darkness. But Isaiah says, look, there is a glory that's coming. The light will rise and then in chapter 61 and 2, both those chapters, he walked us through the proper responses to this coming glory so that our eyes will adjust to the light that will rise. Remember that? Because the, glory, the coming glory sometimes seems absurd to our modernistic minds because it's our eyes that have not yet learned to see and behold the coming glory. So Isaiah says, look, Preaching is given to us to adjust our eyes to this coming glory. Prayer is given to us to adjust our eyes to this coming glory. And um, the, the pilgrimage, the path, that's, he goes back to that path going through the wilderness. That is given to us so that we can adjust our eyes as we walk on it. Now in chapter 63, the prayers that he told us to pray are answered. Now, to appreciate this, look at 62, verse 6. Isaiah was telling the people to pray until God brings his glory, and don't stop till he does. So he says, on your walls, 62, 6, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put Yahweh in remembrance... Take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Don't stop praying until God brings the glory that was promised in chapter 60. That's what Isaiah is telling him to do there. Now notice he's saying he's he's likening these prayer warriors to watchmen on the walls looking for the coming glory. Okay, that's our context. Now in chapter 63, verse 1, the glory comes, or at least God comes. And in verse 1, now you need to imagine a dialogue here. It's the watchman calling out, and the one coming, God, answers. There's going to be two, twice they're going to go back and forth. So, the watchman, verse 1. Hey, who is this who comes from Edom? 
and crimson garments from Basra. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Who is this guy? This guy answers, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Verse 2, the watchmen reply, well, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? Now God answers, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. We don't know what the watchmen do after that. But here they see coming garments stained with blood. And we see that this prayer for the coming glory also brings a sobering vision of the one who trods in his wrath. The watchman, uh, uh, do we let him in or what? We'll come back to this. Then, in response to this vision, the prophet prays. Now, remember, this will take us from verse 7 all the way through chapter 64. It comes in two parts. Prayer part one is, remember when... So the prophet's going to pray about what God had done in the past. So here we go, in verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of Yahweh, the praises of Yahweh, according to all that Yahweh has granted us. What a shift in scene, huh? From this dreadful judgment coming to, ah, he's so good. I'm going to praise him for all he's done. And the great goodness of the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Verse 8. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. (laughs) And he became their savior. So remember when the exodus that's what the prophet's saying here to God. Remember when you, you came and you saved us. You delivered us. And they will not deal falsely. Well, in verse 9, in all their affliction, he was afflicted when they suffered in slavery. God suffered with them. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he angered, uh, then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea? That's the Red Sea with the shepherds and the flock. Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? 
who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths. Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the spirit of Yahweh gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. So here he is, the prophet, talking to a people who are going to suffer in exile in Babylon. It's going to be a lot like Egypt all over again. And he's praying to God, God, remember when? Remember when the first time we were oppressed in Egypt, you came and you, you intervened in all those events. And you came and showed up powerfully and you led us and you rescued us. Remember that, God? Because we're going to need to remember that when we are in exile. Well, now part two. Remember when? Now he prays, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. So in verse 15, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Yahweh, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. O Yahweh, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage, your holy people held possession for a little while, our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. And there's a description of the exile. It's like we've been abandoned. Yeah, we had the, we had the promised land for a little bit. But then, oh man, the sanctuary got trampled down. And we're like those who were never ruled by you, abandoned, lost, 64 verse 1, he hits a climax in his prayer. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not even look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Do you hear the, just the cry in this prayer? It's like, God... God, we can't take this anymore. Please, like you did in the Exodus, rend the heavens open. Come down to us and do once again what no other eye has ever seen you do for a people who wait for you. It's a desperate prayer. Bring in a new Exodus, a new liberty. Bring us a new Moses, a new Savior. Verse 5, he continues, You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways... Behold, you were angry, and yeah, we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? It's been a little while, God. You can deliver us now. 
We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. What a picture. Their sins are withering them, so that they're like the autumn leaves. The wind comes, and there you go. There's no substance to you, right? Because sin has sapped you of your substance. Verse 8. Oh, no, sorry, I skipped 7. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Yahweh, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Yahweh, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Yahweh? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Rhetorical question, right? Will you really let this go on? And at the back of that question is the plea, just come and rend the heavens and come down to us. Well, this does happen. It'd be worth your while to go to Mark. Hold your place here, of course, but go to Mark. (laughs) We're getting a little preview, I guess, because we'll be going to Mark in a couple weeks. But if you look at Mark chapter 1, you will see this very prayer's wording written over the baptism of Jesus. It's unmistakable what Mark has to tell us about Jesus. So if you look at Mark chapter 1, verse 1, we read, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, you should know by now that that's Isaiah chapter 40, right? Verse 3. Now, John, the baptizer, appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Remember, you heard the prayer we just read, right? And that they're mourning over the fact we've sinned and God was angry. That's why we're in the the plight we're in. We sinned. Well, John comes and says, it's time. No more sin. We're coming out of this mess. And in verse 5, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. They're finally turning. They're finally saying, God, you are our father. You are the potter and we are the clay. Now, verse 6, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. 
And he preached, saying, by the way, if you want to try that diet with me this week, we can do that. (laughs) And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, here we go. Verse 9. In those days, while this whole revival is going on, that's what that means, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Wow. He comes out of the waters and sees the heavens being torn open, which is the wording that our prophet uses in Isaiah 64 when he prays, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and save us. And here, God has come down, and at the baptism where Jesus is publicly acknowledged as the servant Isaiah for prophesied, who has come to lead the people on the way through the wilderness at that public declaration of his baptism, the heavens are rent open in fulfillment of the prophet's prayer to say, God indeed has opened the heavens, and he has come down to save us. The exodus. Remember when, God, you once saved us? I am doing it again. And Jesus is your Moses. Follow him. He's leading you through the Red Sea of baptism. He is going to set things right. The so-called right side of history is here. To which the Bible is saying, yeah, better though. The right solution for history has come. And... In further fulfillment, it said that he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now that is all over our uh, locale here in Isaiah. You may remember back when the servant was first talked about in Isaiah chapter 42. It said, Behold, My servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. By the way, my servant in whom my soul delights, that is what God says to Jesus when he comes out of the waters and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. It's just the Greek version of this Hebrew text. And then the spirit comes upon him. The servant is revealed. And we just saw it last week and the week before in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, a passage Jesus preaches from and says, The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me. And here's Jesus. The heavens are torn open and the Spirit is upon him. And God says, This is the one whom I have pleasure in, just like Isaiah said, the servant will have my pleasure. He has my pleasure. So, God, remember when you once rent the heavens and came to save us? Please do it again. And in Jesus, God says, I am doing it again. Friends, it may have taken Isaiah's prayer, depending on when you date this passage, anywhere from seven to 500 years to be answered. Seven to five hundred years 
We cannot doubt that Israel continued to pray this for all those years. And what did he tell them to do? In chapter 62, you might remember, he said, keep praying until God does what he said he would do. It might take a while. But I don't think God's concerned with how long that cord of history is. As long as we are turning from our sins, we're undoing the evil that is in that cord. That's what he's looking for. Jesus is leading us through everything, and he's not afraid to go to those places. Jesus wasn't like, yeah, let's just ignore all the hurting people here, but let's progress Jerusalem and take down the Romans. No, that wasn't his philosophy. He actually said, hey, if you want to follow me, things are going to get a lot worse for a while. I'm going to go to the cross for starts. The kingdom of God is coming in its glory, but you will see it coming in its glory when I am hung on the cross. Jesus, at that moment, was on the wrong side of history. The Romans made sure they made that clear. And for a long time, it looked to be that way. But 2,000 years later, Jesus is still king and Caesar is not. We need to be less obsessed about where the right side of history is and what the right solution for history is. And Isaiah prays for it, and Mark shows us that it's clearly Jesus. He's the one whom God rent the heavens to send to save us. So we continue into Isaiah 65, where God now responds. I mean, I guess we, we saw his ultimate response in Jesus, and we're going to see his final response in a moment in Revelation, but he gives a verbal response to the prophet here. And it goes like this. So you have this sobering vision of the coming God, and there's blood all over his garments. Then you have the prophet praying, remember when you once saved us? Please do it again. Run the heavens and come down. And now God's going to say, you sure about that? Okay. Just make sure you're prepared when I do run the heavens and come down. Just make sure you're ready. So 65 verse 1. This is God now speaking. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat in the, is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. They are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Whoa. Now, you've been camping, I am assuming, roasted marshmallows before. And you know very well how annoying that smoke is. Now, I've done some, some beach camps with youth groups, and they always like to have the evening teaching session around the campfire, which is great for everyone except the speaker. Because everyone gets to move, and, the, and they always give the speaker the place, so the, the smoke is just like... <gasps> so John 3.16, for God. And yeah, that's how God felt about Israel, though. So he's saying, like, look, guys... You're in the place you are because I was stretching out my hands to you all the time. I was always available to you. And yet you continued to go to bricks to burn your offerings. And you were sitting in tombs and eating pig's flesh. And 
No knock on bacon lovers, but that was just a big taboo for the Jews in that time. But now, verse 6. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their bosom both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says Yahweh, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their bosom payment for their former deeds. You see what God's answering the prayer now, how he's answering it? God, please run the heavens and come down to us. He's like, you sure? Because if you're not ready for me to come, my coming may not be good news. Thus says Yahweh, verse 8. As the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it, so I will do for my servant's sake, and I will not destroy them all. Okay, so there's a lot of bad grapes in the bunch, but he's going to save the good ones. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Accor a place for herds to lie down. For my people who have sought me, but you who forsake Yahweh, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny... Doesn't that sound kind of like people who say, oh, we're on the right side of history. History is leading us. We're going to set the table and pour a cup for destiny and fortune. Yeah, well, for those of you who do that, verse 12, I will destine you to the sword and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. So therefore, verse 13, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord Yahweh will put you to death, and his servants he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former things, I'm sorry, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Be prepared. That's what God has to say. You want me to run the heavens and come down? Just make sure you're ready when I do. So if you're praying this, make sure you are also putting your life in accordance to my coming. So I guess in a sense, there is a right side of history. And that is, are you going to be coming with God? Or is he going to be coming against you at the end? In a way, what he's responding in chapter 65 is he's simply putting in words of warning the vision of chapter 63. You saw that terrible, sobering vision of the one drenched in blood coming to the gates of Jerusalem. So I'm telling you in chapter 65, Israel and Christians, I'm telling you that if you don't want to see that as a dreadful coming, then make sure you're prepared. Make sure you're worshiping me and you're serving me and not just, you know, 
doing your own thing. So in chapter 63, you see that sobering, dreadful vision, garments stained in red. One more place. You can hold your, Bible, your spot here in Isaiah because we'll go to one more verse at the end. But um, we're going to go to Revelation for a minute because Revelation also picks up on our passage. Revelation 19. Ooh. So, in Revelation 18, the great city Babylon, symbolic for all of the evil, it falls. It falls. And in chapter 19, heaven rejoices. It's finally come. The kingdoms of the world have collapsed in Babylon. And now it's time for the kingdom of God to come to earth in and through his Christ. And so we see the coming in Revelation 19, verse 11. And please pay attention to how he is described You'll pick up real easily, I think. 1911, then I saw heaven opened. Speaking of rending the heavens, huh? Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He... And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That is imagery of Isaiah 63. He's borrowing from it. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. So on one side, you have them. Now verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress. Back to Isaiah 63. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now look at the other side of the end of history. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the riders, and the flesh of men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast... And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had not, those who had received the mark of the beast and those whose worship it, worshiped its image. Wow. Okay. So this gruesome picture in Isaiah 63 gets picked up as... The final fulfillment of the final rending of the heavens and God's final coming. The final coming at the end of history. And so while Jesus is the solution for history, we see at the end of history there is a right and wrong side. And on one side is the one with blood-dipped robes and his saints and angels coming. And then on the other side it's the beast 
Antichrist and his prophet and the nations all gathering to make war against him who sits on the horse. So what side are you on? What side are you on? It's not what side are you rooting for, friends. That is not what God is asking us to do. Yeah, we root for the good guys. Great. But as Isaiah said, as God answered to that prayer, you want me to come around the heavens and bring justice and to fix all the wrongs, but make sure that you're actually the one promoting good and not just rooting for it. Because the passive observer is just going to float down the river of status quo. It's fine. So here's what we're calling. Here's, here's to me the passage that's really calling me. And I think every time anyone who reads this, this sticks out. 64 verse 8. This is back in Isaiah. 64 verse 8. So we see the implications of everything here. And it says, but now. There's a turning point. There's a change. There's a, there's a moment where we get to make a turn in the road. As Lewis has said, progress is not just going to fix evil. It has to be undone. There's a moment when you have to go back and say, okay, let's fix this. But now, oh Yahweh, you are our father. Yep, we admit we had other fathers. We had other gods. We had other ways of doing things. But now, he prays. We are the clay, and you are our potter. And we are all the work of your hand. Those who are on the right side, in other words, are those who yield themselves like clay in the potter's hand. I fear that there are many Christians who treat their walk with God the way that many secularists treat the course of history. It's moving in a predetermined path, and it's gradually going to get better. Over time, all this stuff will fix itself out. So make sure you're on our right side of history. Um, I fear that many Christians live their walks like that. I'm just kind of coasting. I'm just going to, you know, as long as I just keep going to church and I keep doing the things I'm supposed to do, or, or at least, as long as I don't deny God and worship other things, I should be good. Everything will sort itself out. Very passive. Yeah. yeah, God will take care of it. Here's the problem. If our cord, if this, if this is our life and it has tangles in it, what, what do you think is going to happen if we just kind of let ourselves keep going? That, that knot is going to get harder and harder. And then you're going to continue to have problems with people in every situation. And you're going to keep thinking, why has everyone around me been living like they're from hell? Why is every situation I'm given have to curse me? That attitude is a person who's got knots getting way too tight in their life. Because there's, ah, I haven't cursed God. I haven't denied him. I'm still a Christian. I do good things here and there. Friends. That is not being clay in the hands of the potter. When the potter takes clay in his hands, he doesn't just hold it out there and say, okay, I'm going to put you on the table. I'll be back in 15 years and see if you formed or changed at all. 
sorry, that piece of clay is going to be exactly as he left it. What clay does in the potter's hands is it yields itself to the potter's active work where he is rending the heavens in our own lives and coming in and shifting and shaping and forming us into that which he wants us to be so that we would be useful. But we don't like it. You know, we don't like being reshaped. We don't like being poked and prodded. Because what God is doing as he shapes and molds us as clay is he's taking the tangles of your life and he's working on those. He's working on those. But only when we allow the potter to take the clay can he work on it. (laughs) If any of you have raised a daughter, you know how bad tangles can be and how hard they will fight your efforts to get rid of them. But if you don't, you'll have hair like Medusa. <laughs> or, or you'll get dreadlocks, which may actually be a cool thing to some kids. I, I don't know, but they have to be. You can't just let it go, right? The tangles will not take care of themselves. If anything, they will work toward getting worse. So there's this plea that now there'd be a turning point tonight that we could say, but now. He's the potter and I'm the clay. And no more of this passive, yeah, things will change when they change. But no, I am tonight. I'm going to surrender myself to his hands like clay does. Clay doesn't resist the potter. And if it does, the potter will smash it and add the water he needs to and spin it and form it until the clay yields to him. That's what the call is tonight. So there are knots here and there and, well, literally, but there are knots in my heart. There are knots in my soul. There are things that I haven't taken care of. There's evil. There's sin. There's damage. And we just want to move on. Like, oh, it'll sort itself out. Maybe if we just keep going. No, we got to go back. And we got to say, potter, reshape those, untangle those, fix those. Because you are the right solution for my history. And I want to be on the right side of your history. So the potter will undo the evil in our own lives. Let's come before him now.